Hi, and welcome to episode 112 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger, and today I'm excited to bring you my conversation with Joe Bertini. But before I do, I just wanted to send a message out to all my fellow Sydney siders in lockdown out there, especially artists who've had shows scheduled over this time. We've been in lockdown now for a couple of weeks, and things ramped up today with tighter restrictions. So I hope wherever you are that you're staying connected with loved ones and getting through it okay. A few weeks before all this happened, though, I visited the fabulous Art House Gallery and was blown away by Joe Bertini's show, Songs of Dry Hills, which was filled with the kaleidoscopic landscape paintings of the desert of New Mexico in the US, where she's lived for the past five years. Luckily for me, though, she's visiting Australia over this COVID period, and so we caught up at her home in Sydney. It's not only the vibrant colours, though, that grab your attention, and she even uses iridescent pigments, which she mixes herself, but it's somehow the otherworldly feeling you get and the sensation of being engulfed by these large works. When she was a young adult, she spent several years in Europe where she was surrounded by the old masters and impressionists, but it's her love of the desert and its First Nations people that's led her to spend months at a time in that landscape, not only here in Australia, but in India and the US. But Jo is not only a landscape painter, she's also an acclaimed portraitist with work in the collection of the National Portrait Gallery, as well as an art educator, lecturer and writer. She's been exhibiting for over 30 years in hundreds of solo and group shows and her work has been acquired by private and public collections across the world. You can see examples of Jo's work on the website, talkingwithpainters.com and of course you can always Google her website. Jo comes from a family of recognised painters and photographers including the famous modernist photographer Olive Cotton. But it's her mother, the sculptor Anne Ferguson, who was the greatest mentor when it comes to her artistic life. And we start this conversation with Jo recalling how her mother's practice influenced her own beginnings as a creative. She worked every day and it was just a given that, you know, mum worked as hard as my father worked and was off in Canberra, was off out at Parramatta or wherever she was because she did a lot of public sculptures. Yeah. And she also taught. So, you know, I remember when I was at school I used to have to go to wherever she was teaching, get the bus to wherever she was teaching. And often, I mean, there were times when she was teaching life drawing or she was teaching modelling, sculpture in clay or in, in carving or plaster or whatever, and the model wouldn't have turned up and she'd just say to me okay get your gear off come on sit there and I'd be just (laughs) okay okay so yeah so it was sort of one of those things that it was just normal like it was really normal from a really young age to have art books and painting materials and crayons and colored pencils and I was always being given art books by a member of the family you know it was one of those things that oh look at this artist and um, why don't you draw this or why don't you paint this so it was just it was the way we grew up it was very normal especially me it was I was very compulsive so I loved to draw and paint so that I was always encouraged also even though your mum was a sculptor she would paint as well yeah 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 paint drawing all of it pottery like we did everything enameling I used to do enamelling when I was a kid glass like we we were encouraged to try everything and I was in particular because I was so curious and I just loved making things so and we sort of 
my family had a policy of no television and so we were just always I was just always doing stuff making things and you know in the country in the garden I was always outside Mm. spent my whole time outside so you're always finding things to do and make and yeah you know building caves and oh my god how amazing so you must have done art at school I I did art at school I did really well um and then when it was just kind of a natural thing that my art teachers kept saying, encouraging me. You have to. I'm, I mean, I was very lucky. I had a facility, and I don't know whether it was because I was just compulsive and doing it all the time, but it just came really easily to me. At school, I used to do little portraits of people all the time because it was like a party trick. I was very influenced by the modernists and the postmodernists, so Matisse and Gauguin, and I loved the Fauves. So and the post-impressionist Bonnard, all of all, I mean, I was just wrapped up in copying all that stuff. I was compulsively doing my own version of the Tahitian woman, you know, on yeah, Balmoral yeah. Beach or something. <laughs> 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 your Bondi Tahitians with frangipanis on Bondi Beach. Yeah, it was just I I don't know people. I loved people and landscapes, and I always have. I yeah. think I just yeah. So. Was it a logical step after that to study after school, to study art? What did you do? Well, I was, um, I was, my family was very determined that, you know, you had to get a university education, you had to do, my father was um, quite determined that we had professions so that we could look after ourselves and he wanted me to study law and I got into arts law at Sydney so I started that and I hated it. I had after the first couple of lectures, you know, just that, yeah, I just found it mind-numbing. So I sort of ran away with the circus and I joined this theatre group that was a, a (laughs) well, they weren't theatre and they weren't dance. They were performing artists and we'd do dress up in leotards with leg warmers and put plastic down everywhere and throw paint at the audience and, you know, roll around (laughs) like... It was so avant-garde. We were just so cutting edge. But it was all just experiment, wearing masks and, you know, oh, all this yeah. crazy stuff. But where, it, did, where did you perform? Like in Sydney? Sydney, yeah. It started at Sydney University and we were in Liverpool Street. It was called, the company was called On Track, but they were very European, they were French and they were European based. And so the people I was in the company with were much older than me and, um, I just fell into it through Sydney Uni and I just sort of moved into this shared house with them all when I was about 17 or 18. And so does that mean you didn't uh, finish your degree? Did you drop out I, of uni? I dropped out of Sydney Uni because I was okay. given the opportunity to go to France and study with this company and so I was like, yeah. And I thought, <laughs> well, I'll just study part-time. Like I would just So I did it all via correspondence through the Open University Scheme in London. Um, and then I studied literature and fine art I was doing anyway and I was doing all these weird performances and, you know, painting portraits of Europeans and yeah, right. the whole thing just, yeah. So you kept painting right through? Oh, yeah, yeah, I never stopped. It was a really good way to make money. And I did, when I lived in Italy, I used to do um, medical illustration so oh, for okay. surgeons that in operations and because this was all before... You know, this shows how old I am. This was before the digital era. So often um, when surgeons were working, um, mostly maxillofacial, so cranium and head, and when they were doing 
operations in the theatre. They take photographs, but they have all the lights and there's all this shine and stuff. So when they go to do their presentations um, for lectures or teaching their students, they need a lot of illustrations and diagrams to point out, you know, where the bone is, where the soft tissue is, and you can have a key, obviously, with an illustration. So I used to end up, I mean, I did a lot of medical illustration and little sort of um, called kind of very representational little paintings yeah. for surgeons and and people in the medical profession and, you know, for their publications, for their scientific journals and for their lecture series. And it was bloody good money. So And I, so you yeah. worked from, they gave you photos? No, no, often they'd give me a head. <laughs> Really? Or I'd sit in the operation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a great job. Yeah, it was good. It, it freaked me out. The first time I got given half a head and, you know, they turn it <laughs> to upside down. Yeah, just on a plate basically. <laughs> Could you just do the upper mandible and all the teeth and stuff? And they'd be like, oh, okay. So to what extent do you think those years, I think you were away for 10 years, yeah, um, yeah. sort of fed your um, oh. visual... That was education. my education. I mean, I studied in France and then I studied, I went to the Academia Brera, which is in Milano, and I used to live in a tiny apartment above it and I'd just go downstairs, go to my night classes, go to life drawing, go to, you know, and the the kind of things, the academic kind of rigour of having to draw from the nude from and also draw from plaster busts, you know, and draw from bones and do the anatomy and do the like anatomy was a big part of the sort of curriculum and you you didn't skip that traditional training but then you had the modernists everywhere and you had the you know Europe was where Matisse and and the Impressionists all of that came from there so it was just everywhere so I think just being steeped in that for 10 years and I was so curious and I just loved it. It was my passion. Well, so what was it that made you come home again? Um, I came home because I think I was getting to the age, you know, um, about to be 30 and um, I wanted a baby and I met someone here and I went back to Europe and I was in a relationship with a much older man. He was 20, 25 years older than me and he didn't want to have children. And I think I just, I came back here very briefly. I can't remember why. I came. Oh, my grandmother. My grandmother was um, very ill and about to pass away and I came back to be with her. And I wanted to be with her when she passed and I was. And I was very close to her and I, I took some time and I went out bush and I went back to Broken Hill because my family, she was from Broken Hill. She grew up in Broken Hill. My family was from Broken Hill. Um, and I went to the desert. I went to Alice Springs and I just reconnected, I think, with my family and not my immediate family so much but my f- family history. Yeah. And I just started travelling in the desert and then I met someone and I went back to Europe and I just wanted to come back to Australia and explore Australia again. And I came back. I got pregnant straight away. I came back, took my daughter when she was born. She was, I think, four or five months old. And I just packed her up and went to the desert. <laughs> really? Yeah, so, yeah. So it was when you came back and you started exploring your family roots that you started falling in love with the desert because this is a major subject in your life's work yeah, is yeah. the desert. 
Can you tell me a bit about how you did end up sort of really connecting and exploring with the the Australian desert? I think when my grandmother, I've never really thought about it, but I think when she passed away, it was a big, I was very close to her and it had a big effect on the whole family, but on me in particular. And I think just going back out to Broken Hill and going back out to the desert, I just felt really connected. And I don't know whether I felt connected to her or I just felt connected to the country and it just felt comfortable and it felt familiar. And I'd spent so much time with her in the country so I was already, you know, I was a country girl anyhow, horse riding and, you know, wandering around paddocks and digging up mushrooms and all that kind of stuff was very normal to me. Mm. Being sort of rural life was very normal to me. I'd grown up with that. But then I think just the further I explored those, you know, red sand dune country and I don't know, maybe, you know, I know that I was taken there when I was younger so maybe there was some kind of memory yeah, that, right. or some kind of yeah. connection there or maybe just my grandmother talking about it and my grandfather as well because he grew up in Broken Hill as well. Maybe just the family talking about it so much and the family home still there in Broken Hill and mm. it's all very familiar in a way. So it feels like it's part of your family yeah, history. It, it just feels, you know, when you return to a place and you just like, oh, I'm home, mm. you feel comfortable. Mm. And it's kind of like I think when people... When I come back from overseas and I come to Sydney, I don't feel it. But when I'm out in the bush or in the desert, I have that sense of you just sort of relax within yourself and you you, you feel you're in the right place. Mm. This is my place. This is the right place. Mm. And it's funny because um, when I, I spent years out in the desert in working in Indigenous communities and working with Indigenous people. And I remember um, an old woman, wonderful Aboriginal woman, saying to me once, the desert right-sizes you. And she meant that it puts everything in perspective. Mm. You know, it does right-size you mm. because you get this sense in the city that your life is so important and everything, everything is so dramatic, everything is so important. But when you're out in the desert, Nothing really matters. It's really like it doesn't – who cares about your hair? Who yeah. cares about what clothes you wear? Yeah. And it people yeah. do relax and you do have this sense of being right-sized. Everything's in its place. Everything is in a proper order in, in a way. Yeah. And tell me about the way you've experienced it because I know you um, worked with the Australian Desert Expeditions for a number of years. Decade, yeah, 10 yeah, years. Right. Yeah, right. And yeah. tell me about that because I've seen some video <laughs> of what they do and I just thought, oh, my God, I didn't even know there were groups that did this. Yeah. Can you talk about that, like what, what a day would be like being on one of those expeditions? Yeah, I did. so I did that for 10 years and um, it's very addictive. <laughs> so, and the scientists, I mean, they're just such wonderful. I just love working with scientists. So... Um, it's a not-for-profit and Australian Desert Expeditions is a company that um, takes museums, universities and scientists into very remote, inaccessible parts of the Australian desert that haven't been explored to um, explore and try and identify and research. And we walk. So we take strings of camels um, and depending on the number of scientists and or the group, the size of the group, 
will depend on sometimes I've done an expedition just with two of us and six camels. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Really? Yeah. I've walked the entire Simpson Desert from north to south on a diagonal transect. It took about two and a half months with six camels and just me and one other person. Did you feel vulnerable? Um, sometimes, occasionally I did. Yes, mostly I didn't. Mostly I, um, no, I mean, I think I have, <laughs> I think I'm really naive. <laughs> I think I just, I just, I'd just be thinking, oh my God, what if something happened to that other person? Or did you have a GPS phone? Yeah, yeah, we have sat phones, satellite phones yeah, and right. stuff. But I mean, I probably wouldn't have been able to use it because I'm not very good at technical <laughs> stuff. What's it like that looking after six camels? It's tough. It's hard. So you have to load them every morning. So we don't ride the camels. Camels carry all our gear. So the camels have to carry all the food and water for the expedition for all the people. Plus they have to carry, we don't take tents, we just take swags, which is, you know, what a swag is that you put your sleeping bag in a kind of a canvas, waterproof canvas cover, and you just sleep in it with your face exposed. Some swags have little hoods that you can, if it's raining, you can cover yourself. But I always sleep just in my swag with a sleeping bag with my face out in the air. Um, But they're very warm and waterproof because it can get really cold. Like it's been, I've woken up, it's been minus six, minus eight at night. You wake up with frost on your face and your beanie and your eyelashes and eyelids are stuck together. And yeah, but it's gorgeous. It's wonderful because you sleep under those stars, which every night you just have these, you face in the stars with these shooting stars and meteor showers and the colors of the stars out in the central desert and the brightness of it. Oh, anyway. So doing that for weeks on end. Months, months so on end. So months. That, yeah. that must, you must get into a rhythm. You do, you yeah. do. And you have to, it's very physical work. So you have to get up before dawn, make a fire, put the billy on, make yourself some breakfast, pack up camp, pack up all your gear, everything, load it back onto the camel. So everything's, it's, it's very military in the sense of everything has to be in order. Every camel has its gear has to be loaded on in exactly the right way, has to be tied off in exactly the right way. So you learn how to tie the racks, the ropes, and how everything gets tied on and how the camels get loaded up. And each camel gets loaded in a particular way with what they can carry physically. And also so that you know if you need to put your hand on a shotgun or a rifle, you know exactly where it is. Or if you need to grab, say, your camera or GPS equipment or we have um, satellite like we have solar panels on top of the camels to charge the satellite phones and to charge the scientific, you know, they, they need their cameras and their gear and equipment. So if they need to get their traps out or if they need to, you know, exactly where everything is. So every camel has a job and equipment it carries and that stays the same for each expedition. And did they, did you get to know the camels? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do they have personalities? Yeah, absolutely. They're just like any domesticated <laughs> animal. So like your your dog or your puppy, they have absolutely they have personalities. It's funny. I'd um, in the evenings uh, when we'd made camp, there's always there was always an hour or two where I get to just go off into the dunes and paint. So I'd take my sketchbook and my gouache and my watercolor, whatever, and I'd go off into the dunes to paint. And that's the time where the camels are hobbled. And they're allowed to just go off and range freely and graze. And I'd often be sitting on a dune painting 
and one of the camels would come over and sit next to me and oh. lean on me or put their head in my lap and I and you know <laughs> Chewy who was a girl camel she she and I or Jumpa who was my camel they'd come over and they'd flop down next to me and start to scratch against me or roll against me or they'd want their head scratched so they stick their great big heads in your lap and you're like I can't do this right now. The light's going and I just can't give you any time. Oh, that's amazing. I would never have thought that they're very gentle. They're very gentle creatures. So tell me, what was the purpose of that of that sort of artwork that you were doing on those expeditions? So I was the expedition artist on each of the expeditions that I was on. So I would do any expedition work that needed doing. So say for example, if a botanist had discovered uh fossils often but plants and cultural material um you can't just you can maybe pick it up to look at it but often you couldn't even touch it if we didn't have permission so they'd ask me to draw it aside from the technical work that I was there to do which was to do any drawings and illustrations and paintings that the scientists needed for their records Um, I was also there to work as an artist. So I would see the desert and experience it so differently to anyone else. Mm. So when you're talking, I remember talking to Mike once and saying to him, oh, look at that beautiful line of white that I can see on the bank of the dried riverbed on the other side. And he'd look and he'd say, where? And I'd say, can't you see it? I can see that. There's a distinction between the colours in the sand. And he'd say, just a minute, I'm just going to go over there and have a look. I think that might be some, because the riverbanks, when they erode, when the waters come down through the channel country, they collapse and they expose fossils. So if I saw something different, he'd say, tell me, because you're seeing the desert differently to me and I might not notice it. so collaborative. And, yeah, it's so interesting with, um, you know, you go to an art class and you find that through that, you know, it might be a three-hour class and by the end of the class you're still seeing things that you did not see at the beginning and it could be a still life or something. You think, oh, my God, how did I not see that line or that shape? And we see selectively. So we see according to the way we've been educated. So if you're an ornithologist, you only see birds. If you're a botanist, you only see plants. And you can say to them, oh, but didn't you see that great big cow that just walked past us? And they're like, I didn't even notice it. You know? (laughs) Did you not notice that there were dingoes following us? Because often we have dingoes like, no, were there dingoes? I had no idea there were dingoes. Whereas, you know, the the biologist who's really interested in mammals is taking notes of how many dingoes and where the dingoes were walking and everything. Whereas, you know, I'm off with the pixies somewhere else. Like everybody's in their own world and everybody sees so selectively. If you're interested in trees, you only see the trees. If you're interested in water, you only see the water. Well, you know, one of the things that I really loved is that amazing book called Fieldwork. Mm. What I enjoyed about it is a collection of sketches and gouache paintings. But what I really enjoyed about it is that it feels like it is your sketchbook. That's exactly it. So when the publisher asked me if she could um, have, she asked me for access to my archive, 10 years of desert archives. And she said, but I want cut. Blanche access. I'm going to publish it and I'm going to choose the paintings and um, drawings that I want to put in. You don't have any say in it. And I said, okay, the only proviso I have, the only thing I would 
I ask you to do is to make it the same size as my sketchbook. So it doesn't look like a book of finished paintings and it is just fieldwork. It's just those really quick impressions, those really quick drawings and paintings that you do when you're in the field. And that's why I'm so glad you said that because it is exactly the size of my sketchbook. Well, and it also, the texture of the paper feels mm. like a sketchbook. Oh, good. Yeah, good. It's, it, and it makes you almost feel like, oh, I want to get my pencil and draw on that blank page that's oh, next good. to it. Yeah. <laughs> good. You know, and, and I mean, I love those drawings of the camels that are like those, you know, continuous line drawings mm-hmm. that we've done. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of art students have done where you've just encapsulated that shape of the camel in one line. Um, is that your approach usually when you're sort of out in, in the desert? Or? I don't. I, I do a um, – you've probably done this. I, I do a sort of a way of working. There's sort of processes of working or painting or drawing. And one of the ways that I use quite frequently when I'm in the field is the instinctive way where I'm not looking at what I'm actually doing but I'm looking at my subject because there's so much to see that – I've learnt to trust my hand and I know where I am on the page without having to look at it. So rather than work representationally where you're constantly observing and recording, which is what you have to do when you work technically. Mm. So when when I work as a technical draftsman or painter, you're constantly adjusting and calibrating so that you get as fine a representation as possible from what's in front of you. So you're observing and recording. But when I'm in the field working for myself out of my sketchbooks and I'm walking along, because you, you're moving all the time. You have to learn to paint and draw while you're walking. So um, I just look around and paint and draw and I just turn the page and trust my hand that it's getting what I need. And it does have that sense of the instinct or the, the sort of the feel of the place and the animal rather than an exact technical, you know, getting the correct detail yes that you have more the expression of the the plant or the animal or the person so a lot of those are are really really fast because things are happening animals are moving people are moving like the women in the waterhole we were just washing in this waterhole and we had this tiny little waterhole and all the camels came over the hill and decided to get in the waterhole with us And, you know, I was just like, stay there. And I grabbed my, I'm stark naked with my sketchbook, drawing the women and drawing that kind of interaction between the women going, oh, I'm going to get hit by a camel. And the <laughs> well, these great diagonal sort of postures as well, and that sort of this sense of movement mm-hmm. and the moment. Uh, they just, there is something about a, a quick sketch. Yeah. That captures something more than a more laboured work. It has a, an integrity to the experience, I think. Yeah. I think the authenticity of that lived experience is there in that instinctive response. Mm-hmm. And I, I like that way of working a lot, not looking at what I'm doing, mm-hmm. not being present on the page, mm-hmm. being blind to myself, to the artist, and just being in the moment of looking and painting and drawing and and just I mean you know when you've been working for so long like a lifetime you know what your hand's doing you can trust your hand well also having so many hours in the day you're not 
preoccupied with, you know, dropping kids off at school or anything no. like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the day is long, I presume. I yeah. mean, you do have a lot of things to do, like prepare meals and all that sort of thing. But there are these hours where there's no distractions, I presume. No, and it's very peaceful. I mean, we're all walking along. Sometimes, you know, there's no one there. And sometimes you're walking with scientists. But you can also just go off on your own all day mm. and be out as long as you can see the camels and the camel train and the people you're fine and you can go off exploring and doing your own thing everyone's moving in the same direction but it's it's quite a slow journey really the way camels walk so we'd walk from uh, anywhere from i don't know five to 20 k's a day 25 k's at the most a day over the sand dunes and up and over and you you pretty much know like you can go over a couple of dunes and disappear you know, if you if you wanted to, but you pretty much know where you are in the desert, mm. um, and so it's extremely peaceful, and you do have a lot of time to process and think, and but mostly you do get into a certain rhythm where you're just being, and you're not really, you don't have that quotidian drama of paying bills and going to the supermarket and putting petrol in the car and all those kind of things. You don't have to worry about that. And the camels have everything you need. Yeah. I remember Robin Davidson saying to me when she first when I first went out into the desert with Robin on a trip and I remember, you know, I had children, I was going through a lot of sort of domestic stuff and I remember loading the camels with Robin one morning morning and she just looked at me and she said, Give them everything. Put all that burden onto the camels, let them carry it. And it was a great kind of metaphor for what the animals do. They do carry our load for us. They do carry everything for us. And you do get to be free and just mm. walk along with your sketchbook. And when you're painting with gouache in that immediate way, yeah. did you have – how did you sort of actually set up your gouache? I mean, do you have just a little palette, a yeah, small yeah. palette? So do you know um, – and I say this often to people that come to me that are going off on a trip and they want to know what to take and everything. So the best things I ever found were those water brushes. Oh, you know, yes. Yeah, yeah. You have, fill them up. You fill so them the body up of the water. brush has yeah. got water in it. Those um, brushes are fantastic because you can just fill them every now and then. You don't have to be constantly carrying a jar of water. And you can. they have a couple of different types of sizes of the brush so you can get a, a finer headed brush or you can get a round headed brush or a square cut brush um and the little you know those they're actually they're marketed as watercolors but they're actually gouache they're powdered gouache that is compressed pigment and they're in those little sets that you screw together and now they make um, an iridescent one yeah the very strong one so i used to just put them on my arm or i'd just take a, a little tin that i'd take them out and glue them all in so you could just open it and the water brush and my sketchbook so I could walk and paint because I'd hold the tin, have my sketchbook and then my brush. And you can do a lot with very little, very little. Well, this takes me, this this, uh, leads me on to probably one of the most important things about your work and that is colour. And what we're looking at these magnificent paintings around you at the moment which are in progress and they are just, you know... uh, you know, filled with pinks and blues and orange and yellow, any any colour you can think of. So when I, you know, I went on online, I was watching videos of those expeditions and I've got to tell you, 
They're not very colourful landscapes. You know the funny thing? <laughs> it's so funny because I'd, I'd be sitting out in the dunes and the southern desert is white. So the Simpson Desert is very red in the north, that beautiful iron oxide, that red. Yeah. And then it, it bleeds out as you head towards Lake Eyre and the salt lakes. And as you get further south, the desert goes from that beautiful, rich, rich oxide red to this sort of apricotty pink colour, this shell pink, this... and beautiful umbers and sepias and then it goes to white desert so you can we will be walking around the salt lakes in the south and it's white and it's I would look at it and be freezing in winter it's often freezing you get this arctic wind coming up through the center of Australia and I'd often be walking thinking it's snow and ice because it's so white and it isn't snow and ice, it's sand and salt but it feels and looks like snow and ice and I'd sit and paint and a scientist or someone who'd come and sit and say, do you mind if I watch what you're doing? And, I, you know, that's fine. And I'd be painting. And they'd be looking at what I'm painting. And they'd be looking out and going, <laughs> where is that? <laughs> and it's like, it comes through, you know, it's, it's kind of what I was saying before. It's how I see. Mm. And I don't, I see it. Mm. But no, they don't seem to see it. And I know it's not. A, a true representation in the sense of a realistic representation but it is my representation and it seems obvious to me like I'll pick up the pink in the salt around the edge and I just it comes in off my brush as I don't know whether it's a dynamic kind of energy or or it's a part of the spectrum that I'm seeing but I I just pick up on the love of that colour that I see inherent in that landscape. And Mm. I suppose expressionism is a type of exaggeration in a sense or drama that you build into the work because you can see it. The same as you were saying about the instinctive drawing. Mm. It's a process and it comes through the process. I don't like to say that, you know, you're a medium or that artists in some way, we're not, it's not being a conduit or a medium in a kind of a spiritual sense. It's more that you're, you have a, um, a prism with which you, and it's multidimensional and it's multi-experiential and emotional and that prism is you. Yeah. And so the, the work obviously comes through your vision and your way of seeing through then the process of your recording to be whatever it's whatever it is because of your personality and well and also I would say emotion because I think that's one of the main things that you get from Mm. color well for me anyway when I look at your work uh there's an emotional reaction that I get and and actually what I wanted to talk to you about was the way that you develop your paintings um and we're talking about oil paintings now we're not we're moving from gouache the gouache is they're just in the landscape usually that you do that but but when you get back into the studio it seems to me to be a different process Mm, yes um can you tell me about how you start off and how you build that up and how it differs from from the plein air situation so the the field work and working on plein air and i do sometimes work on plein air with oil um and sometimes acrylic but i don't like acrylic very much but um it's very hard to work in the desert obviously 
unless you're working very small or unless you can transport everything with oil because it doesn't dry. Mm. So, you know, it's sticky and it picks up flies and insects and sand and camel hair, (laughs) all all of that (laughs) stuff, or animal hair. But um, to do the oil paintings back in the studio, the the fieldwork is really important to me. So I have all my sketchbooks, which I have everywhere, and my piles of gouaches that um, I bits of paper, coloured paper and gouaches everywhere. And I usually put everything out. And I never work from photographs because photographs for me are a totally different medium. And if I look at a photograph, I can't see what I was seeing. But if I look at my gouache and my drawing, I remember the experience. Mm. And I'm like, oh, that's right. That's when the camels came and did this. Or that's right. That's when I was sitting on that sand dune and I was looking at that incredible sunset. And I remember what I was thinking. I remember thinking about how this was some sort of Arabian, you know, you just go off on these fantasies. And so I remember the experience and I remember the thought that I had and how it related to my practice and my interests and my ideas. So the the studies and the, the little gouaches and little studies might not be finished paintings, but they have all the inherent content that I need to make the finished paintings. So I don't copy one study or one gouache and turn it into an oil painting. I take all those myriad ideas and experiences and I kind of relive them. And I have them accessible to me so that my eye can catch them. So it's like when you work in the field and your subject's in front of you and you work from your subject. If then you take all that that experience and that... Um, looking and you put it around you you have it in your subconscious but you also have those memories going through your head and the ideas going through your head and I turn my back on it and I make a picture that is a composite of that Mm. and if I need to so you know occasionally if you're painting something you need to refer back to your subject so if you were doing maybe a still life of flowers you initially start from that and then you're working with the painting and the process and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, actually I need to check. Does that look like a daffodil? It doesn't quite look like a daffodil. What was that leaf doing? And so you check. So Mm. I'll often go back and look at the studies and relive the experience and remember the colour and say, oh, that, that was working really beautifully. There was that pink rim around that salt lake or... Yeah, there was that strange darkness um, because there are things called mickeries, which are native wells, and they often have a completely different colour to the environment around them. So if I'm thinking about the idea of um, the ancient water that lies in the Artesian Basin below the desert, if I'm thinking about some kind of science or ecology or environment of the desert... I can refer to my fieldwork to find it and then I can make a note of that sort of subconsciously while I'm painting. Mm. If I'm making a painting of a mickery, I can remember the notes that I took and I can remember the experience that I had and all of that goes into the yeah, work. Yeah, right. And so and, and it feels to me as though it's a layering process it as is. well. Yeah. So do you think at that point, I mean, in combination with what you've just been saying, uh, the painting really takes over in a way as a separate thing? Like you, you're now dealing with it as a formal sort of work. Yes. And it, it 
process can be very corrupting. So I try really hard to fight that. Um, I was taught this phrase by one of my French teachers. He used to say to me all the time, you have to wrestle with the angel. You know, sometimes the angel will win and sometimes you have to hold strong to your intention. So it's a it's a question of compromise all the time with painting. So sometimes your intention, you're so focused on getting your intention, I'm going to paint that tree, I'm going to paint the mickery, I'm going to paint all the mound springs or whatever you've decided you're you're painting and you're going to stick to your intention. But then as you paint, the process of painting is serendipitous. Mm -hmm. So you have this corruption of you think you're, you know, you're working with your palette and you're working with your pinks and your warm colours and you, your brush catches a bit of paint on your palette and all of a sudden you've put blue through it and you think, oh, no. And then you think, oh, that actually <laughs> looks really good. I hadn't intended that. But it, it really sets off all my colour. It's what I needed. So you, it's what Picasso called the success of failure. You know, it's like I failed because I wasn't getting what I was intending, but it's so much more successful for the painting. So the process corrupts you as you paint and it takes you and it's the angel and the angel takes you off on, on all these divergent paths and you could go, you know, there's infinite decisions you have to make and infinite variations of each painting of what form it could take and at some stage you have to keep wrestling with the angel and bringing it back to your intention and saying I will concede this much I will go this far but now I need to be decisive and, and use my own artistic personality and say no I still want Something I'm not going to give to you entirely because if I give to you entirely, you're going to corrupt my whole intention. And sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes go with it, you know, but you have to know how to make decisions and you have to know how to calibrate. I mean, the older you get, the more you understand that, you know, decision-making is so important. And, and if you can be um, to know really what you want, to, mm. to be able to say, you know, not that I'm sticking to my intention and I'm painting this tree and nothing's going to corrupt that, but to be able to see the gifts that the angel gives you, you know, to be able to see those joyful, serendipitous failures that just are gifts because they've just made the painting so beautiful and it's unconscious and it's instinctive and it's part of painting process um, and incorporate that with your intentions yeah. so that it doesn't corrupt your intention. Yeah. Does that well, make sense? Yeah, it does. Well, the other interesting thing about the issue of decision-making, I think it's really important, uh, and I think professional artists are probably good at this, is is sort of saying, okay, that's, that's it, I'm doing that, and now that's enough, I'm moving on to the next thing. Yeah. Because I think you can end up just going over and over and over forever. Yeah. You know? Some people paint too much I had another teacher in Italy who used to make me sit on my hands you paint too much you paint too much sit on your hands it's like you paint fast you paint too much sit on your hands and think and watch watch the painting watching the painting is really it was an important lesson ah. so you know you need to the painting tells you when it's finished do you and find that you do what paint fast I do paint fast and I um I watch the painting a lot I sit and watch a lot. I learnt to sit and my mum taught me that too. She was a great teacher in reading poetry, listening to classical music, taking yourself off, um, 
it's a, it's a type of it becomes a really codependent intense relationship you and the painting you know and you need to break that spell you need to break that nexus and a lot of artists use a technique of turning the painting to the wall or or just going away and having a cup of tea for a few weeks or something you know just <laughs> just so that you're not yes. you, you've got to break that hold that the angel has on you you have to break that codependence and you have to be able to look at the picture um with with a sort of an object, not an objective eye, but uh, not as subjectively involved in the ego of the making of the picture. The, there's a lot of ego that goes into painting, mm. and there's something to be said for being able to to look at your work um, through a, a, a different. Uh, I don't know how to explain it really. For me, it's a really instinctive thing. I know when a painting's finished. It just there's nothing more I can do. Yeah. It's like you you get to a point where if you did any more you'd ruin it, yeah, and yeah. if you do any more it's it's purely for an egotistical the joy of painting, you know, because you just everyone loves to paint. It's such a beautiful pastime. It's just a beautiful physical thing to do, but I think you can overload the picture. And I remember um, Kitty Cantilla was one of the first Indigenous artists I worked with, and I remember watching her paint something and then paint over the top of it. And they do it, Indigenous artists often, a lot of the artists that I've worked with in the Western Desert, you'd, you'd watch them make the painting and then hide it, cover it. Ah, really? Yeah, because you're not initiated. You, you don't, the painting has the story. The painting holds the story of the experience that they're painting mm. or the knowledge that they have or the story that they're painting. But then... The world doesn't get to see that. The only people that get to see that are the people that can find it. So, And they would be the initiated. They would be the people that know that story, that would recognise it. Mm. So sometimes when I'm making a painting, I want to do that. I want the painting to do that. I want the painting to reveal and conceal. And I want to do that in the process. So when you were talking about the layering, for example, it's really important to me that paintings have longevity and they have depth and they have substance, which is all my experience and all my knowledge, whether it's a, a kind of an academic kind of scientific knowledge that I've learned um, from being in the desert or an experiential knowledge that I have. I want the paintings to have all that, but they also have to be paintings and yeah. to be beautiful and joyful and to, to be um, working on a level that I want them to work on so that they connect with people. Mm. But then other people will see the depth and the substance to them and that there's more. So it's that constantly being able to work on many different levels for many different reasons mm. and that revealing and concealing, whether it's built into the composition with the perspective or the colours and the tones so that they're always shifting with the light so that sometimes the pink would be more red and other times it's more purple and blue because I grind my own pigments and, and maybe iridescences or even without the iridescences, just the mixing of the colour tones so that it will shift with the light. So the painting is always changing. Yeah. Well, actually talking about Kitty Candela, uh, that moves me on to... <laughs> Portraiture. Moving on. Moving, moving on, on to portraiture <laughs> yeah. because you are also a, a very um, 
a recognised portrait painter. You've been in the Porsche Geach over 10 times. Um, I think 20-something. Was it? Tw- oh, gosh. I, I shouldn't was, say that because oh, that shows me how old I am. <laughs> I was so trying old. to count them up. I think I gave up after a while. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah a lot. But, yeah, um, yeah there's, a, there's a beautiful portrait of Kitty Candilla and Frida Wallapini um, in the Port- National Portrait Gallery mm-hmm. in the collection and it's actually on display at the moment. And... Uh, they're two two women elders from Melville Island Art Community, and it was interesting in that painting uh, that was from two thousand and four. It's quite a limited palette, blues and um, neutral colours. Yeah. Do you feel differently about portraiture than you do about landscape? Do you approach it in a different way? Um, yeah, I do, and I mean, I think my last, I think I did a portrait of my mum a couple of years ago that was in the Portuguese that was. And my dog, my mum and my cattle dog. And mum had her sculpting gear on and she, you know, headscarf with the, like you, the headphones and because of the jackhammering and the <laughs> stone tool and gum boots and overalls and all of that. And it was really bright and really colourful. And uh, I think it's just, in terms of the palette, I think it's just the the people like um, Kitty and Frida were really strong women warrior women and initially when I went there they didn't really want to have much to do with me and then when they learned I was an artist they were interested and then when they saw me doing portraits like often in indigenous communities and I found this in India um, working with the Rabari and the um, Maldari herders and the tribal people and then the same in in New Mexico with the um, Native American communities and um, the Puebloan people it's like when I was at school, my entree in always is to do portraits. So once I start doing portraits, you know, they bring their babies. And I remember Kitty making me draw all her grandchildren. So all her family, you know, they yeah. bring the dog. And that's why the dogs are in that painting. Because they made me draw all the bloody dogs in the community. <laughs> you know, So I'm just sitting there in the sand, in the dirt with these women. And before I'm allowed to even talk to them, or work with them, or get to know them, or spend time with them, you have to prove your mettle. Over the years, you've also been, um, you know, you do a lot of teaching. Yes. You do art workshops, which people really enjoy. I've noticed, I've seen on social media, people always say about how great they are. Um, and I always love asking people who teach others um, about either advice you might have or the most common mistakes you see uh, with people when they're painting and they're learning how to paint. Is there anything that jumps out at you? Firstly, I, mean, I think it's the most important thing is to learn your materials. So you really need to get your skill level up with your materials. It's kind of like anything. It's kind of like what you do. You need to learn how to operate your equipment so people need to learn how to use their brushes properly. I, f- I get frustrated because I see a lot of my students aren't um, using, using very good brush handling techniques. So it's just things you need to be taught. So yeah. you need to find a teacher that can teach you about mediums with your paints, about how to use your brushes, how to prepare your palettes, just simple technical stuff, preparing surfaces, what surfaces suit the type of painting that you're doing all of that kind of thing um, if you want to work with a palette knife. you know. So just um, materials and technical skill and that comes through practice, through finding out and learning it and then practising. You really, a lot of people come to me and they love painting but they don't paint much. 
So you've got to paint every day. You really have to paint every day. And whether you're painting an hour or 15 hours, it doesn't really matter, or whether you're painting half an hour, you've just got to have that practice in every day. So it becomes that hand-eye coordination becomes a second sense. Because once you get past that development of skills and materials and technique, you need to harness it with your concepts and your ideas and with your um, understandings and intentions as an artist. And, and all of that becomes very conceptual and very cerebral in a way. And that's the really difficult stuff. I mean, that the thinking and the meaning in your work the subs, is a real substance of yeah. your work. So unless your skill level is proficient enough that you can harness the two and be able to actually use your language to say what you want to say, then you don't have enough, you know, vocabulary. Well, I think also one of the things, you know, it it is really important to keep painting a lot but then not making the same mistakes over and over again. Yeah. So if you're using the wrong technique, you have to sort of try and find out and try and see your work objectively too and sort of see why isn't it working um, and try and figure out, how to do it better I suppose yeah and people people do all of us have habits yeah and it's really important to break habits it's really important to surprise yourself another thing that I often ask I guess is is how if they have a routine do you have a routine to get into your um yeah it's funny I never thought I was a routine type person but I think working in expeditions too for those 10 years getting up and making the fire and loading the camels before I could even paint kind of thing. Yeah, I like to get up early and I like to go for a walk. I like to have a cup of tea, <laughs> first thing, and then um, have a walk or, you know, just get outside. I need to be outdoors. So even if it's raining, I'll just get outside and have a big hike, big walk, either take the dog or, um, and then come back to the studio and get another cup of tea and go in the studio and I just try and work. I used to be able to work at night a lot and I'm finding as I get older I'm too tired and the lights, uh, I find it harder and harder to paint under artificial light. So I like daylight, natural light, um, and I like to work all day and I work mostly every day. Yeah, right. So um, even a weekend, you won't differentiate. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. When my kids kids were little, they used to say, can't we have a weekend like other people? (laughs) (laughs) But people have weekends, you know, and I'd be like, no, they don't. Nobody has weekends. What are you talking about? Every day's a day. Yeah. I just, I don't know. I just always, you know, there's so many interruptions in life anyhow that, you you know, you've got to go off and teach or, you know, you have responsibilities and commitments and, so if if I can just have that daily routine, I know it's going to get interrupted and I'll have to, you know, run and deal with something. Um, but mostly, yeah, I go in the studio early. If I can be in the studio as early as possible and if I get interrupted, I'll go back and I'll work. Uh, it's just, it's an addiction. And tell me, what have you got coming up in America once you go once you go home? You've got uh, a show coming, uh, quite a major show coming up. Can you tell me a bit about it? Yeah, so um, I've been really lucky. I've been commissioned to do a big summer exhibition, which will go from mid-April till the end of August at GOCA, which is the Gallery of Contemporary Art at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Yeah. 
and it's um, a huge building, huge museum, and it's a public institution. So wow. I'm really excited because it's not a commercial show. It's a museum show yeah. in America, and it's based on the American Southwest and the desert country there and the idea of environmentalism and desertification and science and, and all my sort of knowledge of working with different Indigenous communities and um, deserts of the world. Yeah. Oh, it sounds absolutely amazing. And, uh, yeah, congratulations again on your show at Art House Gallery. It was absolutely brilliant. And, and good luck with everything coming up. Thanks so much, Joe. Thank you. Thanks, Maria. And thanks for all your hard work and interest. I really appreciate it. What a wonderful artist. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Joe Bertini. I also took some video on the day of the interview and I'll be editing that and getting it out to you in a few weeks on the YouTube channel and Instagram and Facebook. Just search Talking With Painters on any of those platforms and it'll take you there. There are about 150 videos on my YouTube channel now, including my recent video of Guido Maestri starting a painting in the landscape outside Mudgee in New South Wales, which is one of my favourites. Also, for those of you who follow the show on Instagram, you might have noticed I went live during the week where I chatted with whoever wanted to join me. It was so much fun that I'm planning to do that again during lockdown. I'm recording this on Friday the 9th of July 2021, so I'm planning to get online during the coming week and I'll let you know on Instagram when that's going to happen. Thanks to all who have rated and reviewed on Apple Podcasts. It's wonderful to read your comments. Thanks for listening today and hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters. The world needs art and the world needs artists and you just do your job and they'll find you. I think the work finds its place.